Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the founder of Entrinium, Nolan Garrett. When most businesses think of getting their data secured, many commit the fallacy of doing it long after establishing their initial software network. Our guest today is nothing less than an expert in this field, building up a resume that includes working for the Washington State Department and has a client base of multiple Fortune 500 companies. Nolan's interest in technology started the moment his dad gave him his first PC, and the rest is history. 2007 saw Nolan commit years of academic and practical experience with cybersecurity into becoming a founder of Entrinium, which has grown to be a leading figure in the IT security market. Entrinium has been nothing less than a glowing success story, a founder starting with just himself, a partner, and a vision, and building it up into a multi-million dollar company. Entrinium is growing like crazy, so Nolan, my friend, let's get to it. Thank you for being here today, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. Yes, sir. Well, we took our shot at uh, understanding your origin story, but I'd love to hear in your own words, how did we get into this whole business? Sure, absolutely. So uh, you mentioned, you know, my dad brought home that PC when I was young and, you know, the rest is history. I still remember him bringing it home. I think I was like 10 at the time. I remember being, you know, a little bit into video games. I didn't really know, can you do that on this? And from there, you know, my whole journey was basically, how can I play these cool video games on this PC, which led me to learn how the computer actually worked. And then, you know, as I, as I grew up, I, you know, started to apply that in terms of like building websites and doing all that cool stuff that you yeah. can do when the internet was fresh and new. So, you know, from, from there, was, I, go ahead. One, sorry. What was the state of PCs at that age when you got there? Like what, were we into the World Wide Web yet? Were we were we just doing floppy disks? Like, what? Where were we at? Yeah, we're just talking floppy disks, right? So we're talking about that big beige box that you see, right? Uh-huh. Like, the, remember the '90s kind of thing. Yep. Uh, the internet was, you know, AOL on a CD, and if you were lucky, you could dial in over your phone line if no one <laughs> else was using the phone, you know, to get your email or to instant message. So we're talking about early, early internet for sure. Mom, get off the phone! Exactly, you're ruining my gaming. <laughs> So for you, your interest at first was around the ability to do some gaming, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so from there, um, I decided, you know, probably in my early teens before, you know, I think most people make these decisions, I knew that I wanted to go to college and I knew that I wanted to get a degree in computer science because I thought that would help me, you know, learn how to build video games. Mm. And so getting to college, you know, start that process. And as I'm, you know, learning how to build video games, I realized there's a lot of math involved. There's a lot of physics involved. And guess what? You don't get to play nearly as many games <laughs> when you're building the <laughs> games as I thought that you'd be able to, right? Um, And at that same time, um, the college I was going to, Eastern Washington University, uh, they uh, started a new series of courses around information warfare, which was, you know, Mm. a really new concept at the time, right? I mean, hacking at that point was people defacing websites for fun, right? Just kind of messing around, but it wasn't a whole cyber criminal organization like what you see today, right? And so I took that first information warfare class and just fell in love. I completely love the concepts of, of risk management and securing environments and playing that hacker, you know, and that defense and trying to put yourself in that mind space. And I was just hooked. Mm. So what year is that around like early 2000s that this is happening? Yeah. So that would have been 2001 through 2005 is when I was going to college to get my degree in computer science. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. And then how long after was it that you started having the idea even that I think I want to start my own company? immediately. In fact, when I was in college, I was trying to plan how I could build a business around this, but I had really no experience and I had not worked in consulting or anything like that. So I tried something and it failed. I couldn't even get my first client. You know, I didn't really understand how to speak to the market. I just had no clue. Um, And so I ended up going out to get a quote unquote real job working for a consulting company that did cybersecurity consulting regionally in the Northwest here in the United States. And so I, I took that job and started traveling a lot and really started to understand at least how the consulting piece of the industry worked. And then yeah. in 2007, myself and a founder went out and started Intrinium. Um, and that's the story that continues wow. on till today. Wow. So when you, when you launched basically the second business you ever tried, what, what did you do differently that time from the moment you, you hit go in your mind and got your plans together? Where'd you start? 
Absolutely. So number one was identifying, you know, for us, what our target market was going to be. This is definitely what I did incorrectly before. I thought, hey, everyone will be interested in security because right. I am. So why wouldn't everyone, you know, take me up on this? And of course, crickets, right? So this time um, I specifically focused on financial services, which at that time were going through their transformation of they were starting to be targeted by hackers. They were starting to connect their systems to the internet. There wasn't a lot of consulting or understanding of how they could do that securely. And mm. so that's where I focus. And so I spent a lot of time working with banks and credit unions, especially in the Northwest, helping them develop their information security profiles and their technology architectures. Were you the only one they were talking to or were other people at that time starting to target them as, as, a, as a target market for their, their company as well? Definitely others were. Um, you saw a lot of the larger consulting firms at this time start to think about it. So the Deloitte's, you know, and the EMYs oh, yeah. and those, you know, they started to recognize that this was a business that was definitely going to grow for them. Um, we also saw, you know, as that market was kind of shaking itself out, you saw a lot of IT providers, traditional IT providers who would just provide, I don't know, internet services or, you know, a, a new computer or a telephone system. They started to try to dabble in security, trying to understand, is this a completely separate business or is this a function of IT. And so I found us, you know, really trying to be a cybersecurity focused organization competing against this combination of IT providers and then, you know, the largest consulting firms in the world at the same time. Wow. Why do you think those first customers took a chance on you? Because that's how it always is before you have a long resume of who we've helped and what they've said about us. Someone's taking a chance on you. Why do you think they took a chance on on Intrinium? Yeah, you know, I, I think a big part of it is I, I have a lot of positive energy and, you know, I was very trustworthy, right? You know, or I am very trustworthy. I, <laughs> yeah, right? I was, not anymore. Yeah, I was, yeah, not anymore. It's best change. No, um, you know, I was one of the few people to actually have some kind of degree that had a focus in uh, information warfare and cybersecurity. So that added a lot of credibility. Um, and in that previous role I'd mentioned where I worked in consulting, I was actually a, um, an examiner for the Department of Financial Institutions for Washington State. And so I worked with a lot of these credit unions, especially helping them understand what meeting the compliance requirements meant for cybersecurity. So when it came time for me to go out and consult and help them, they already knew who I was. They had seen me before. I had gotcha. been their examiner in the past. So that, that made those connections, which is everything sticky, right? And from there, the trust was built. How difficult was it for you to learn the sales component of running a business, right? You're trained in in the technical expertise of the service that you're providing, but not trained, I would assume, in how to actually do kind of B2B sales. Was that a difficult learning curve? Did you take to it easy? What was that like? I I found it. Um, you know, I had worked in my kind of non-real jobs in retail sales, so I understood the basic components of sales. But, you know, I really, especially at that age and with, you know, my, my love of the technical side, I was very interested in selling the technical solutions. And it took me some time. It took me a handful of years to realize that the customer doesn't care about the technical solutions. They want the end state. They want to yeah. be compliant. They want to be secure. They want to not have a breach, right? And so it took me a couple of years to really try to refine and understand that messaging to be able to speak to a CEO or a CFO at their level and help them understand why the investment was important and why all those zeros and ones that I was so excited about really didn't matter to them. That's what they were really outsourcing to me was letting me handle that piece, right? Yeah. So there, there was a bit of a curve there for sure. Oh man, I'll, I'll never forget um, one of, a, he's now a friend, but at the time he was actually just a guest on one of, on my other podcast and he's super successful in, in multiple companies and off the basis of his ability to market and sell and that kind of thing, right? So I just was like, hey, man, I'd love for you to take a, a look at what I'm doing and, and give me any pointers or, or anywhere I'm not doing right, right? So he starts asking me basic questions like, all right, what's your value proposition? Who are you selling? Why? What, what's the end result? Whatever. So I start lengthy, lengthy explanations of what we're doing and why we're doing it and whatever. And he goes, stop, 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 stop. He goes, Drew, do you speak French? I go, no. He goes, you don't speak the language of sales either. <laughs> I was like, oh man. And he goes, you're not speaking the language of results. He's like, all these people care about is the problem they have and the result you're going to give them. And yep. you're spending all your time geeking out on the solution and the, how we're going to deliver it and whatever. And it was a, it really was like learning a new language, right? It, it, that's absolutely what it is. And it's, it's really, 
as I have learned, you know, over these many years, starting to sell into the Fortune 500 and, you know, working with these organizations that are so much larger now, I, I've really realized that the details are why you're potentially being hired, right? They don't want to know the details. What they want to know is, is this at least as good or better than what our peers are doing? Is my cost somewhere in range of what my, it's going to cost my peers, right? Yeah, and yeah. is the outcome going to be you know, what you're guaranteeing me? Am I going to avoid that breach or whatever that might be? And if you can speak to those things, you've won the sale. That's really yeah. what it comes down to. Did you guys have to show some specific numbers like that? Like, here's the investment, but here's what you could expect in terms of the ROI of this being protecting you against this could cost you this much or your competitors at this price. Did you have to do that kind of stuff? We can do that now, but the industry was such a fledgling industry at Got that it. time. There was just no market research, no data, right? And so there was this concept at the time of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That's how everybody sold the service was because you couldn't say, oh, you know, the average cost of a breach is $300 per record. So how many do you have? That's your, you know, you couldn't do any Got of that it. work. You could just say, it's going to cost you a lot and you're going to look bad on the news. You should hire me. I'll probably cost less, right? That was really <laughs> the argument at the time. Now you can get very specific, right? Right? You can help yeah. a customer understand their attack surface. You can help them understand, you know, what the potential is for breach and drill that down into dollar amounts where it makes sense for them to spend with you than to spend for that breach. So that early season of the company, I'm curious, was it a wild roller coaster ride? Was it for the most part pretty consistent traction and nothing too freaky. What was those, what were those early years like for you? Uh, definitely wild roller coaster, right? Uh, definitely. You know, I was, as I said, 23. So my experience generally in life is pretty limited at that point. My experience in business, pretty limited at that point, right? Sure. Um, and so I had a lot of concepts I think entrepreneurs sometimes have, especially technical ones have when they enter these fields is I tried to wear the hats. I thought I both need to be the chief consultant and I also have to be the CFO and the CEO and set our strategy and run our books and figure out our marketing and, and right. Like I was trying to do all of those things. And I tried to juggle that for several years up until uh, the time when my partner decided that he wanted to go on and do something else. And so I had the business fully on my shoulders and I realized I can't do this. It's wow. not possible for me to juggle all these things at the same time. And so I started peeling portions out. But to be honest, I, I got rid of the things I disliked first, right? Like everyone, I got rid of the accounting first, right? Get rid of all the things that you didn't get into the business to do. I did that, but I held on to the consulting roles and those things. And so it took me a lot of time of, you know, traveling and trying to sell and grow the business and all those things. Um, it took me quite a ways through this kind of roller coaster period of when you're out delivering, you're not selling, right? Yep, so you're always yep. in this feast or famine, kill what you eat kind of scenario. Made it, it made it very difficult for me to get to consistent revenues and a consistent understanding of that the business was going to be successful every month, not just the months when I was working or when I was working on the clients and not out selling. Yeah. Now, when it came time to, or, or your, your partner exited and it's all on you, uh, help me understand the scenario. Are you a team of one at that point? Like you had truly been doing everything or there were more people you had hired, but hadn't learned how to delegate yet. I had just hired um, within about a year of that partner leaving two additional staff members, one to run kind of the technical IT operation or not run to do the work. And then the other person um, was there to do the consulting around some of our cybersecurity, uh, more the risk management framework. So I had two people, both of them were relatively green, you know, basically fresh out of school or had a couple of years of experience. They weren't really management or executive material at the time. Sure. You know, they, they've grown, but at that time they were, you know, too young inexperienced for that. And so all of those roles fell on me and I really, you know, leaned on them to do the hands-on work while I tried to figure out how do I delegate more? How do I scale more? You know, with, you know, I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, you know, I bootstrapped, you know, I didn't have funding. I didn't have, you know, VC or angel investors. I took $1,500 out of my checking account and put it in a business checking account and said, I wow. have a business now and started. And so I had to do all of these things with, you know, can we build that, get the cash in so I can do this next thing, right? That was always the, the next step for us. Yeah. And it ends up being the catch 22 of I'm doing everything at first because the business literally couldn't afford for me to outsource any of this, right? Like the margins are probably already so slim or the amount of clients coming in, I can't hire somebody, then it's not gonna make sense. But then at some point it, it, it actually is the choke point, right? Where the business can't grow beyond that. So take me there. I think a lot of founders really struggle with that, recognizing when that season is. And then when they do, 
they become so integral to the business where people have bought you, not necessarily your company, right? That it, they don't know where to start. Like, is it time to spend money on this? And where do I start? I'm not saying you have all those answers, but just in your experience, what was that like? Yeah, it was it was challenging, right? Because the I think what your brain tries to tell you is it tries to be logical and say, well, when you have the funds, then you can hire the next resource. When you have the funds, you can make that next step in marketing, right? And so, you know, just get a little more, then you then you can finally do that next step. But my experience has been that's never actually the case. It seems huh. as though as an entrepreneur, you have to jump off the cliff first. And once you've jumped off the cliff, you will figure out how to get to that next stage. But, you know, I remember bringing in, um, I remember bringing in uh, a staff member um, for $40,000 a year. And I remember going, oh, we're in trouble now. How yeah. am I going to be able to cover this? But you know what? Not only did we figure out how to cover that $40,000 a year, which is not a crazy salary in this world, you know, anyway, um, but it forced us to figure out, well, I guess I got to go work more on sales, right? It, it, it um, narrows your focus to what's critically important when you make those decisions. And so my advice for sure is if it, you have to just build the thing that you know that you want and have faith that in yourself and in your team that you're going to troubleshoot your way to success. Wow. Man, I really like that. I mean, that's even timely for our business. We're at a similar in a similar stage. So I'm always selfishly listening for my audience, but I'm also <laughs> listening for me. And and it does. You get in that trap of like, do we get that money first and then hire? Or do we hire knowing it's going to bring in more money, whether directly by the position we hire or by, like you said, the pressure and the belief that we can figure it out? That's that's really profound. I wrote that down. Well done. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so was that a am, am I characterizing this right in those early days of scale? Was that one of the important moments or were there other moments that you look back on as like, that was another turning point? Yeah, you know, I think, I think that was definitely one of the major moments. Another major moment for me that was a real turning point for the business is I had, I had this perception that since I had started the business young and with this uh, maybe limited amount of experience, I felt like I wasn't positioned to be able to demand the rates that the rest of my peers or, you know, the Deloitte's or whatever were yeah. asking for in the industry. And so I would, being out of Spokane, Washington, I would naturally go in and discount what we were doing naturally. And I couldn't re figure out why are these other businesses beating us out on these contracts when I'm charging less and I have this resume and I have this, these capabilities and I even have references that say I can do it. What is it? And finally, I had, uh, I had a business advisor who I was just talking, you know, at lunch with one day, he's like, well, why don't you just raise your rates? I'm like, well, I'm already losing enough. I can't raise my rates, right? Like that can't be it. He's like, just try it. Send out the next set of your bids. Just send them all out at whatever Deloitte would charge for that. And I did it and we won them. And when Whoa. I asked the customers, what is this? They said, well, you know, we understood that you had the references. And when, you know, we saw that your pricing was about the same as what Deloitte and these other ones are charging, we realized you understood the work as well as they did. That's what they told me. Wow. So in that <laughs> sense, it really did reflect value in their eyes, right? So it, if you're if you're coming in so low, they must be thinking like he must not be that good. Is that is that maybe part of the psychology? I think that was exactly it. They were looking at, you know, the comparisons of what we were previously trying to charge and against, you know, our peers and going, well, clearly Intrinium does not understand this project. Otherwise, they would have bidded it three times the cost or twice the cost and they didn't. So I'm going to go with the one who seems like they understand it, right? So simply ah. changing our rate structure gave us a new level of, of uh, perceived capacity that uh, we just hadn't been communicating when we were offering a discount. Wow. Now, I'm always curious about this in, in my work with, with so many founders. There's the psychological trap of I'm not who people think I am, right? Like, that everybody battles with that kind of internal Wizard of Oz feeling like I'm getting lucky, I'm pulling some levers, but I'm just a normal dude. And that's some insecurity, right, that we all go through. Absolutely. Was that part of it? Is that part of the can I really price myself like the big boys kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because, you know, you I, I think that's 100 percent part of what I was dealing with. And I'll be honest, you know, for people listening to this, I deal with that even today. Right. Like, yes. Even before I hopped 
onto this podcast, you know, before you and I met, I'm thinking, who am I to be giving advice to anybody? I'm just a dude in Spokane, Washington, who's been trying hard to work his way through these challenges to get to some level of success. But, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people look at it and they think, oh, you must have had a master plan. You must have known how it was going to work out. You could see the future and then you achieved it. But that's not really what we do as entrepreneurs, right? Really what we right. do is we set a goal and then you do all the squigglies trying to figure out how do I get there? And you're going to make mistakes along the way. And at, when you make those mistakes, it's easy to look at yourself and go, well, it wasn't a straight line. So there must be something wrong with my decision-making, or there must be something wrong with uh, my willingness to take a risk or what have yeah. you. So I, I think that imposter syndrome is very, very real and something that uh, we should be very cognizant about as entrepreneurs that that the regular lessons that we learn through failure, which you're going to have to learn if you're an entrepreneur, you shouldn't let them get you down and uh, imply some value about your capacity. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why I wanted to bring it up is because often the feeling that imposter syndrome gives you, you think is unique to you and is what separates you in a negative way from everyone else who's trying to do what you're doing instead of realizing, no, we all have it. And once you realize we all have it, then that no longer means anything other than yep. the discomfort you're feeling. You know, it's like, and what I've found is in the research, it gets worse unless you unless you intervene and, and know what's there and, and kind of work on yourself and your value. It gets worse actually with success, not better. And everybody thinks like, once I get success, this feeling will go away. And it's like, no, because you keep, you're still you, but now you've got a bigger track record and you're on podcasts like this and you're getting <laughs> awards and now you're like crap this feeling is heightened does that make yeah. sense yeah you get more and more of an expectation built up right yeah. every time someone introduces you you know and says that you're some kind of superstar in some way yep. you know that's some benchmark you feel like you have to meet and and i've also found you know so you start, you know, I do this thing in my 20s, right? So you've got all your friends out of college and high school and whatever, right? You go through this process and your peer group changes, right? And so you have fewer and fewer, at least close peers to really have these conversations with who've had the same experiences. And so you can start to feel alone, right? You can start oh, to yeah. feel like, oh, I'm just the only one experiencing this or it's so easy for everyone else. I, I can't tell you the first time I joined a mastermind group and sat down with a bunch of other CEOs and we're like, we just went around the table to list what our problems were to determine what the discussions were every single person around that table said something that was one of my issues and i'm like oh it's not just me okay right. wow <laughs> right man i mean the roller coaster journey that's why i asked and by the way the way we structured this podcast is for story because i don't think anybody that i've found has successfully really been able to truly know the future at the beginning and plot a straight path there i'm like tell me the story like there's got to be some journey yours may be more heightened on this side but not as bad as other people's on this side right but there's going to be that continuity of figuring it out and that can be really isolating there's times that you're ahead of other people in a quote unquote ahead and that creates some interesting relationship with friends there's other times you feel really far behind because either they started a company that seems to be successful faster or they have a secure job where they're already making six figures and saving, going on vacation. And you're like, I hope we can pay rent next month. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Am I actually like screwing up my life here? You know, uh, I, maybe I'm projecting on you. Did you ever feel that way where you're like, this is taking a minute to take no. off and that's making me doubt myself, right? I, I, I have exactly had those feelings, right? Exactly. And, you know, interesting for me is um, we had, you know, when I first started the first year or two, uh, went pretty good. And because, you know, you're pretty young then, you know, no one's really expecting six figure salaries and all those things. Right. And so I kind of launched a little bit above my peers, you know, in the first couple of years, but then yeah. I definitely plateaued. I mean, definitely. Right. While everyone else is moving up into, you know, these manager and then director and all these other roles, I'm still here with my three or four people, right. right? right. Like barely, away. barely eking out even a living, right. Like I'm really yes. worried about the tax write-offs to make sure I can, you know, pay for everything kind of deal. Right. Yeah. I definitely, definitely have that feeling. And, you know, I'd even say it, that feeling can persist even as you reach some level of perceived success, right? Like right now is a great example, you know, for me, like um, I'm making these substantial investments in my business today to try to really pivot to become, you know, the largest cybersecurity provider worldwide, right? Well, that yeah. means I'm pouring all my cash into the business, right? Well, my friends, everyone else is directors and CEOs. They're out traveling and partying, whatever. I'm like, if I have a penny, it's going right back into, you know, making yeah. this thing what that goal is. So yeah. I, for me, I've gone through those cycles of feeling that for sure of, am I, am, am I winning? Am I losing? Am I at least keeping up with my peers? Am I not? But 
ultimately for me, I've realized that getting stuck in the mindset of whether you're keeping up with your peers is the worst place to be. Nobody else is worried about you, right? Like stop thinking about it that way. Stay focused on what your goals are. That's where your happiness and joy in life will come from is working through those achievements and those goals. Don't worry about, you know, some measuring stick that's completely made up. And honestly, you probably can't measure accurately anyway. Oh, if the internet has taught us anything (laughs) is that you never know the whole story right? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you don't know, like, we don't know what that person's life's like. And then we didn't even get in that mindset. You go, and it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Like I have my life. Do I still believe in what I'm doing? Do I still feel purpose behind it? Then why am I looking left or why am I looking right? I just need to be right here. Right. It, you're, you're 100% correct. hundred percent. And I think it's one of those things, you know, we t- I talk a lot about this with, you know, some of my, um, some of my younger staff, right? Like the impacts of the Instagram era, right? Where everybody's Photoshopped and everybody's color touched and every version of everything that's posted, you know, has been thought about to present a specific image and exclude all the negative, right? Like it's so easy to think, why am I not, you know, that CEO in that place doing these amazing things. And I think the reality is they're just not telling you the truth about the crap that's going on behind the scenes. They're just not telling you all of that. And then that makes you jaded. That makes you jaded about people that might actually be telling you the truth. You're just like, like, I, you know, I've seen so many times on, on certain like TikTok or whatever, a couple that I've watched that's like does funny videos together and whatever. And you're like, man, is their marriage like way better than my marriage? You know? And then the next video will be, Hey guys, we're splitting up. We're going, we're doing whatever. And I'm like, hold on. Like a week ago, you guys were doing this lovey dovey video together and, and whatever. And now you're splitting up. You know, like we just, and I, that's, I'm just like, you just never know. You never know. Right. Uh, so back to business. I want to, I want to ask you something that you mentioned earlier that I, I think is, is huge. You said we asked our customers, right? Like after you raised your prices and you got some of those bids, you had some form of feedback loop with your customers that you were investigating, like, why did you pick us or things like that? And, and I know that can take a while to even register in a business owner's or a founder's brain that we need to be getting feedback from the customer. So when did you guys start thinking about that and what did it look like or what does it look like now to to get feedback from customers? Yeah, you know, at the time, you know, we're four people. So I'm chief salesperson along with a lot of other things, right? So right. for me, it was easy for me to both sell the account. I know that I'd be in there with at least one or two other people doing the work and I could ask throughout the course of the relationship why did you choose us? Who else were we up against? How did you make the final decision to go with us? And so I made that a habit just to ask. And it was easy mm. for me because I had established that relationship through the sales process. So it was, it was simple. Um, and I got good answers because they learned to trust me. And, you know, I'm also there helping my team do the work, right? So there's that connection. As we've scaled, I don't do that anymore. I can't be on side the client sites doing all the work. We have too many clients sure. for that, right? So now we do it in a more consistent way. We uh, we use Net Promoter Score, like so many do, to understand, you know, would you refer us or or would you hire the last person who came out and did work for you? Would you hire them for your organization? That's one of the ways in which we ask those questions. Um, we always, as part of our standing process, I guess since. Since I was doing sales, though, whenever we win or lose a contract, we always ask the why, right? Help us understand whatever it is. Was it a relationship internally that we couldn't overcome? Was it a cost issue? Was it you just needed to work with a different provider to understand how great we are? You know, like, what is that? What, what was the reason? But we, we never let our customers get away from us without giving us an answer. <laughs> I was about to say, are they, are, are they pretty uh, reliable in giving you that feedback? Do you have to kind of prod and chase down? Like, what's that like? I think it's easy to get some level of feedback, but I don't think you always get the the honest, honest. answer. Sometimes you just get the one that might be um, easiest for them to say face or not have to answer more, right? Like a lot of that love. I don't know. My boss made the decision, right? Completely yeah. opaque answer that you just can't even get through, right? And so you have to pick a little bit more like, well, can I talk to your boss? Can I ask them? You know, what was the reason why the decision was made? So you do have to push. But if you make that, I found that if you go back and, poke back at the opaque answers you get, you'll typically get, okay, fine, let's hop on the call. I'll give you two seconds to really give you the rundown of what happened, right? But cool. you, you, you can't just accept what's given to you on face value either. Is that emotionally hard for you? Like I'm imagining me doing that right now and thinking, yeah, I'd have to be pretty aware of not being offended or not offended, but like feeling bad about myself that like, oh, I screwed that up. I, he didn't like this or they, whatever. Is it, was that tough for you or is, there, is your personality not? It, it was a lot. Much? 
it was a lot harder for me at the time, right? Because I was also the one deeply involved in building the proposal, figuring out what the solution should be. I mean, heck, like I said, I'm worried about tax write-offs so I can put food on the table, right? So, you know, yes. not winning the account matters, right? There's an emotional feeling of like, I really needed that income this next month to pay these two people who work for me kind of thing, right? Yep, yep. Um, so I did struggle with a lot of the feelings around that, you know? Uh, but I have always been one of those people who feels, you know, it's it's worth swallowing the frog to get through it, right? So that you can be that better self, learn that that next thing, right? And so I'll yeah. put myself through that pain and I was willing to do it um, to be able to to learn that thing so that we can we can go win those contracts. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So, so far, it seems like the theme we're talking about or the thing that I'm investigating right now are are, are some of the smart decisions as we look back maybe you knew you're making them maybe it's just in retrospect that like wow glad we did that but i want to pull some of those out first and just say what else as you look back on your journey that again by the way i know it's still in progress and there's still you're still growing i got many more to go but just from this point back as we're reflecting what are some other things that you put your finger on and go that was particularly smart or i'm so glad we did that we made that decision or made that investment or built that into our process does anything come to mind yeah, one major one for us, you know, we, um, as a startup, as an unfunded startup, as a bootstrap startup, we made a lot of our hiring decisions based upon what we could afford, right? It would be like, oh, we know we need to do these things, but I can only afford X amount. So let's just find someone who can do that and we'll figure out how to do the things that maybe they don't have the skill set for. That was painful. Very, very, very painful. And so mm. what I've learned is, you know, sometimes you just have to go hire the exact high quality expert level resource you need and expect that you're going to pay them more than maybe you can afford because the cost of having that person is nothing like having to rehire two or three or four times, lose your customers along the way because you weren't able to provide the quality of service, right? Like whatever you think you're saving, you're not actually saving. Investing in the highest quality resource you can for the work that you need done is the best way to move ahead in an organization. Interesting. Did you ever run up against doing that ha while currently having anybody on the team that was underpaid and them being like, how, how are you able to find the money to go pay that person what they're worth? But I'm still, you know, technically underpaid. Is that an, an issue? We, we have had those issues over time because, you know, especially when you go through rapid hiring sprees and we did, we basically doubled the size of our company between 2017 and 2018. And so I, I hired a ton of people and I hired them all at market at the time, right? Which yeah. was already a changing thing in cybersecurity it was really starting to take off what wages were looking like there. And so I brought in people in the, that were in some cases almost double what I was paying other resources that I had doing very similar work. Sure. And so we had a reckoning, right? I mean, after... We, we got everyone hired. And then about six months after that, we had to go through and start fixing that up and making things right. And some of it was splitting up some job duties to make it right. Some of it was getting people more education so that they could be paid in those categories. And other ones were just straight up, hey, today I'm doubling your salary because we can get there, right? Because this yeah. is the right thing to do and it's who we are. But you have to have those conversations too of why couldn't I do it before? Why was it not possible before? How did it take this long to get to this point? And those are uncomfortable, but yeah. you know, that leads me to the concept of culture, right? Like if, if you have a strong culture with your organization where you're candid and you have integrity, which are core values for Entrinium and the way that we interact, when I interact with my staff, they generally treat me as though, you know, I'm approaching them with integrity, right? They very rarely are like, oh, well, you're trying to hide something because I am a transparent leader with them. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about that. What, how did you guys approach building your culture? What did you found it on? What did it look like to be intentional with that? Yeah. So in the early years, I wasn't intentional at all. I thought that if I just hired all my friends, we'd have a great time and the culture would just kind of work its way out. And if the culture was, you know, beers every single night after work, then that was the culture, right? Like right. I, I didn't even think about it. Um, but once we got to about 10 people, it became very, very obvious that everyone had brought their own culture and their own ideas about how to work into the organization. And so I started to think much more strongly about not just what's the vision, not just who do we want to be or how do we want to get there, but also like what's our decision, the, the decision points that we're going to use? How do we make decisions within the organization? And as I spent a lot of time working on that um, with the help of a coach, I came to the 
to the understanding that there were really a handful of pillars for us. One of them was integrity, accountability, candor, uh, proactive communication, and growth mindset are the five that we have at Intrinium. And those things, like if you put those five together, they really describe how you want your cybersecurity experts to be thinking about your business, right? Proactive, honest, telling you straight what's up, not sugarcoating it, right? And, yeah. and so that's that's how I got to a level of intention around it was thinking about how when we inter- when we have problems at our clients, when we when we do something wrong or make a poor decision or whatever that might be, how do we interact with them to resolve it? That's what those five pillars really became. Now, did you guys use, when you said I had a coach, did you guys use something like EOS and an EOS implementer, or did you have a different language system that, that helps you through that process? So at the time we used um, Ted Schmidt at Action Coach, who's based in Spokane. Um, he was awesome, did a really good job for us. It's funny that you mentioned EOS though, about a year and a half ago, we made the decision as an organization to move to EOS. Yeah. And so we um, have an integrator now, we are hiring our implementer. She should start here in the next 30-ish days as an outside contractor yep. consultant to help us. And yep. we are going through the full EOS implementation process. Cool, cool. Many on this podcast have my company runs on it. We were, we we've done dozens of implementations for other people. Uh, so it's language I'm familiar with, and as well as going through my brain when you said we had at ten people, everybody brought their own concepts, and in that EOS language, they would say there's three traps, culture traps. One of them is what they call accidental, right? <laughs> So it's the accidental culture. It's the one that we weren't really planning on. It's got some good elements to it. And it's got some not so good elements because it just kind of grew on its own, almost like weeds in a yard. You neglected the yard and whatever grew, grew. Does that make sense? Right. Uh, yep. and, then, and then you got in, intentional and said, no, what do we want to create? And th- just so we round out the concept, the other two are aspirational. So there's accidental. Then there's aspirational, which are really great sounding values, but you don't actually embody them, Right. There's somebody else. It's, mm-hmm. it's not true to who you are. And then the third is what we call anti-up values, which are like uh, everybody's got these values. Or in the particular industry we're in, it's like the anti-up at a poker game. Like you got to bring that to the table. It's not going to differentiate you or really even come to mind very often in your world. Like we need this to guide your decisions, right? We need this to shape the way in which we, 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 we do our work in the world. Um, so anyways, another plug. I don't, I don't work for EOS, so I don't get no money from this. <laughs> but another Not point, yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, we did. Like I said, just in, can- in candidness, as coaches with a bunch of tools in our pockets, we were doing that, and we had, we had, we had, we were paying monthly to be able to to implement. And then yeah. recently, EOS had to change their model. I think for some legal reasons, and go to like a franchising model, and it really pushed a lot of people like us to make a decision: Do you really want to spend a ton of money on this, and then therefore make it your sole business? Or is it just one of many things you do and we let it go? And so that's where we were. It was like, all right, we'll let, we'll let other people that want to do this full time do this. And, and, and so, but I still love it. I still love the concepts. Like I said, we run our business on it and, and really enjoy it. But um, back to you, back to you, my man. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, after, after the 10, uh, you guys start to scale. What was it like when you started getting a little bit out of control, right? Like in 10 to 15 people, you still kind of know each other. Everybody knows each other. But then you get to 20, 30 people and beyond, and it's, man, their games of telephone can happen. You may not have met the last hire or interviewed them personally. What's that season like? Yeah, and, you know, this is um, this is an area where I made some mistakes, right? So I, these are interesting to talk about, I think. So um, right around that time, you know, we were about 20 people. I saw some of the competition around me starting to go through some, some mergers. They were doing some acquisitions, started to get super nervous that we were going to get just kind of squeezed out. Right. I knew we needed to get bigger or I felt very strongly. We needed to get bigger. A fear-based decision should have been an indicator for me. So I went out and I acquired an organization locally that I thought had some skill sets that I needed to bring in. And with that, I brought in a partner who negotiated 50% ownership along with it. And so I ended up as a 50-50 partner with, uh, with an individual who brought another 15 people to the team. So the team went from like 18 people to almost 30 people basically Whoa. overnight. And then like 
Six months later, we landed this multi-million dollar per year contract, the largest contract that we've ever landed. And we have to hire another 20 people to try to service that. While we're trying to understand how do I merge two organizations together? How do I solve the fact that I have the weed-based culture, right? Like it has yeah. grown up in the yard as weeds and you know whatever this other culture whatever the other, just yeah. acquired, right? And now I have to hire too. I have to add another 20 people in addition to it. And it was, it was challenging, right? What I learned was when I talk about mistakes is myself and that partner did not sit down and understand what our touchstones and our values needed to be. And so as things started to get busy, guess what? We'd make different decisions and go in different directions all mm. of the time, right? Um, one of the core things I wanted was to scale. One of the core things he wanted was a business that didn't make too much noise so he could spend as much time, you know, in a lifestyle as he wanted, right? Yeah. We were doing very different things at that point, you know, like in the way that you make decisions if you're sure. working for one or the other of those outcomes. And so, you know, we started to reach a, a place where there was two teams, right? There was the team that came over with my organization, the one that came over with his, and they were run differently. They would um, compete with each other in strange and toxic ways that, you know, you certainly don't want going on within your organization. And so I brought in Action Coach. Again, I brought in, I brought in a coach and um, he really helped us uh, outline the core values of how we wanted to interact with each other and understand where the business could go. And in that process, that partner decided to leave, which was, it ended up being perfect for us because we were just almost tearing the business apart. We were trying yeah. so hard to pull different ways. Um, and so he ended up leaving and that really allowed me to take the culture that we have today and just focus on it, right? Purely focus on it. And I won't pretend as though it wasn't painful. You know, I had to make some tough decisions about people who were really, really good workers in a particular field, but they weren't part of the culture or they were, you know, part of a toxic culture that just couldn't yep. persist anymore. And yep. so I had to do some house cleaning. I lost some incredible skill sets just due to the fact that they weren't good fits for, you know, the rest of the business and the way they interacted. Yeah. And we went through kind of a, a lag period where revenue sagged and, you know, we struggled to deliver on time for our clients and we were struggling to find the right resources to bring in her, her, who were good culture fits. So it, it, it was a period of, of pain, but it was worth doing because as we got out of that and got the culture really solidified and focused, you know, we were at that place now when, uh, you know, when an opportunity with a big client comes, we're not wondering, is this for us? Is this what we want to do? Do we want to work with them? How do we approach it? Everybody's all hands. Everybody's in. It's a startup culture, right? We, yeah. we want to think that way and, and be aggressive in that way, which is something that we struggled with in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. So now what, what, what season is the company in now? What, how big is the team now? Is it around 40 to 50? Is it beyond that? And how would you characterize that season of the company, this, this season of the company? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. So we are about 50 people right now and we are in what I'm going to be describing as a, uh, as a new startup world. So um, by the time, you know, this podcast is released, this will be out there. Um, I'm actually working on changing up the businesses such that the cybersecurity focus um, is really kind of packaged on its own and really ready to launch under a different brand. So there'll be some conversation about that yep. in some future months. Um, and I still have this IT management component of the business that I've had from the very beginning. And so we're kind of pulling those apart and making them two businesses with even more distinct focuses. Um, with the idea being that the more focused that we can make these individual business divisions, the faster they'll be able to scale and the more clear decision-making they'll be able to make to get there than when you're trying to run and market two or three or four different businesses all in one. What was the first one you mentioned branching off? So you have the IT management side and what was the other side? The cybersecurity consulting side. Yeah. Okay. And then what's the, what's the thinking behind that? What is, what is getting you to think this would probably be better to to, in a sense, separate them. I know they'll still be under the same umbrella and that kind of thing, but but wh why give that distinction, do you think? Um, you know, we're seeing two things. You know, one is 15 years ago when I started this, 
the idea was that security was kind of under IT, right? Because it wasn't a full-fledged industry yet. And so those things were mashed together. Now cybersecurity is completely separate from IT as it has its own certifications, its own concepts around risk management, frameworks for how it runs. It's a different thing now, right? So in one piece, it's just how you market those. Um, I think the other big piece for us is IT management and IT services management tends to be very regional and usually is focused on SMB players um, who don't have their own IT systems or you know, departments, and so they want to outsource all of that. Cybersecurity actually tends to be focused on the higher end of that medium and into the enterprise side business where they have a lot of moving parts and a lot of data and a lot of compliance requirements. It was becoming very difficult for us to go out and tell a story about IT managed services focused on the smaller end of the SMB and then risk management and cybersecurity focused on the enterprise and have that in any way be coherent. Yeah. And so we decided it was time to make those messages coherent by pulling them apart and giving them their own coherent messaging. What's the challenge? Maybe we'll start with it. What's the risk of doing that, right? Not saying it's the wrong thing to do, but everything we do comes with some kind of risk. Of, what, what do you think the risk is doing that? Yeah, I, you know, you lose at least since I'm going to come up with some new brand for the cybersecurity side, you know, we have a marketing firm helping us with that. You know, you've got some name recognition that's going to go away. You have to spend a lot of time and money on rebranding and repositioning. Um, there's always the opportunity to spook staff along the way about what's happening, right? Uh, be, yeah. Especially post-pandemic, you know, everyone's real kind of cautious about what job they're doing and do they want to be doing it. And so you announce a big change up. And you're going to get a lot of questions and a lot of reasons why you need to communicate to the staff. It's important for them to stay and to be part of it. Um, but other than that, I don't think the risk is actually that it is much more substantial than that uh, because um, we're seeing that the firms that are focused specifically, especially in cybersecurity, um, tend to get better traction than when they give a mixed message around, I, I can do all the things, right? Yep. And yep. so- I think that the ROI on this, despite the fact that there is some risk, is nothing compared to being able to position ourselves expressly as the best cybersecurity service provider nationally or worldwide. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, on the internal side of splitting splitting it up, what's the challenge, not even at risk, but what's the challenge there? Like, what do you, as a, as a founder, what are you thinking through? Like, we're going to have to figure this out. Are we going to have to increase leadership, decrease it? Are we going to have to navigate this like where's your brain go to in terms of that yeah it's it's a couple of things leadership is one of them we will have to increase leadership you know so that each of the separate groups those divisions have the ability um to make decisions and execute on their own you know we want we want the two groups to have kind of a mind space separation right because it's too mm. much for the team of executives i have today you know there's five six of us it's too much for us to try to manage these different businesses all in one right so i definitely have to expand the leadership team um i also have to go through and you know there's a lot of efficiencies you could say that you gain by having you know one accounting group supporting these multiple divisions you know one set of i don't know quickbooks or Office 365 or, you know, all of your systems are all combined. We're going to have to pull all of those apart and have separate systems, which means separate people to maintain them, separate accounting teams. Um, you're dealing with licensing and insurance and stuff separately now, right? So yeah. they really become two separate organizations and they're not as efficient, at least on paper, as they necessarily would have been together. But the idea being they can go faster, right? They, yeah. can, they can scale faster on their own. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, makes total sense. Um, for you, you've got a lot going on. This is where my brain's going right now. Right. You've got a lot going on. You've been in the game for years now and every new challenge, every new, you know, opportunity comes with new challenges. Right. So the stress never goes away. The demand on your time, on your energy never goes away. How do you personally take care of yourself or, or, or relate to that stress and that pressure that's ongoing so that you can function and be, happy, healthy, and, and up for the challenge? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So um, one of the things I've started doing in the last few years is I have a very consistent workout routine, which is absolutely critical in, in my mind for yeah. both managing stress and just keeping your brain functioning. So a lot of lifting and a lot, a lot of cardio, you know, five, six, sometimes seven days a week, whatever it takes to deal with the stress, that's a big piece. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I've tried to do and all oh, it's so hard I don't do it perfectly but I try to remind myself 
if I'm at that place where I feel like I'm at peak stress, but I also don't feel like I can direct that energy towards anything productive, that means I need a vacation. That's mm. what that means. It means you need to step away and get a 30,000 foot view on what the problem is, relax for a minute, because you know, you're just too in it, your cortisol is too pumped up, whatever it is, you're just too in it to be able to see what's going on around you. And so I try so hard to make sure that I separate. The other thing that I do, which I know is heresy in the tech world is, I don't carry my phone with me everywhere. I don't, you know, look at my email every five minutes. You can reach me in certain ways, such as Microsoft Teams and, you know, email and stuff during yeah. prescribed hours that I've set where I'm, I'm checking communications. Let's and then go. I'm otherwise focused on the work I need to do or on the leadership or coaching I need to be doing, not worried about, you know, a barrage of messaging coming from all over. So that that's, those are a few of the ways in which I try to manage my stress levels so that I don't feel like I'm constantly juggling all the time. Is that unique? Like, are you unique inside the company in terms of doing that? Or is, has that translated to uh, almost part of the value system like that, that we've all learned to put some boundaries on our, on our accessibility and time and that kind of thing? It, it has translated not always as much as I would have hoped, but it has sure. translated, you know, my, my executives do a pretty good job about, you know, being able to take time and being focused on knowing when they need that break and they, they expect our teams to. So as an example, we have unlimited PTO as one of our offerings. We're also, you know, fully remote work right now, and we'll probably stay remote work or in a hybrid state moving forward. So, you know, we really encourage our teams to take time off. We don't nickel and dime them on time. In fact, I, we try to get everyone to take at least two consecutive weeks off every year at minimum, you know, just as part of what we do, because this is a stressful job and it's in, um, it's in a stressful industry where yeah. everything demands your time and the, um, the, uh, the responsiveness is key to delivering a good, you know, service to the customer. And so you can build up anxiety after a few years in this role. Oh, yeah. Of, just having to manage the influx of information. Did that customer just get breached or does that thing just mean I have to do something to protect them right now before they do that? Those are real world scenarios for our staff. And so we try to give them that ability to, to disconnect and to turn it all off. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I've seen most common probably, and I think part of it's the effect of right now we're coming out of a unprecedented year right that's stressful for everybody the other part is just the 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 current state of modern work but i'm hearing most i'm hearing so many founders just talk about the the burnout stress survival mode is just a real issue for their company culture right that if you're doing important work and you're getting more important work and it's also challenging to work from home now or what a what that 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 can be an issue do you guys experience that as well or have you feel like that's not really um not really a, a, an issue in your company. Um, I think that it goes through periods for us. So I think we're in a lot better place right now than we were. Um, but, you know, like, especially last year, you know, Q3, Q4, oh, yeah. I, people were at, you know, 120% stress levels. It was palpable, right? Via instant messaging, you could tell like, wow, you're, you're, you're a 12 out of 10 on the tension scale there, right? Like you could <laughs> Get just snippy with each other. Were, yeah. And so we try to do a lot of interesting things to manage that. You know, we, um, we hosted uh, watch movies day where people would join via teams and do their own, um, like, uh, uh, mystery science theater, you know, kind of approach to just watching stupid movies on a Friday afternoon, right? We try to do things to blow off steam and to make it clear that the culture is not just about production. It's not just about, you know, obviously taking care of our customers is the number one most important thing. It has sure. to be in the field we're in, but it doesn't mean to the exclusion of our mental health, to the exclusion of our physical health. There are other people who can step in and cover for you if you need to take some time. We really push people to try to do that. And it helped, but I can't pretend like it was easy. And Sure. especially during the later part of last year, it was a real challenge for our team to, to deal with that stress. And, you know, it's one thing that I haven't mentioned, but it's important for the listeners to hear is um, that tension level, you know, for us as a cybersecurity provider, you know, attacks doubled in 2020, right? So wow. our volume of work went off the chart, right? Like we needed more people. We couldn't respond fast enough during a period where no one can meet in person, right? You can't sign new contracts. There's not new sales relationships. So you got to make this work with what you've got on hand, right? It's a very challenging time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, before we get into the lightning round, I just actually want to provide you the opportunity because I know you've done a good job of thinking about your story and preparing even coming in here. Is there anything we haven't touched on yet 
that you'd be like, man, it, you know, it, we'd really miss out on sharing this key element that characterizes, you know, our company's growth or what we've done that we haven't touched on yet. Um, probably the one thing that I hadn't told you, and I just thought of, I wrote a book and I published it and what? it kind of, I know it came out in June. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I wrote a book. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in the podcast, but Please. it's called fuck me running is the name of the book. Okay. Um, you can find it on Amazon or you can go to nolangarrett.co and that'll redirect you there. Okay. But it's actually uh, a series of stories about the last 15 years of the business that I've been running and the decisions I've made, the mistakes, how I've dug myself out of them, and then resources for like, here's some books I read that helped. Here's some people I talked to that helped, that kind of thing. Come so, on. Yeah, right. It's called Fuck Me Running. Yep. Fuck Me Running. You got it. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, it's, uh, I grabbed one right here. It looks like that. <laughs> yes. Isn't that awesome? Uh, that's awesome. I love it. And it, you said we can, they can find it on Amazon or where? Uh, you can go to nolangarrett.co and that'll give you my site and it'll redirect you to Amazon. Because someone's got .com, don't they? That, I used to have it and then some <sighs> jazz guitarist bought it out from underneath me when mine expired and I've never gotten it back. Oh, the worst. <laughs> God, I tried to get drewmcclure.com a few years ago and somebody that wasn't even using it that has my name had it and <laughs> wouldn't sell it. I even... I think I offered pretty high for, for what it was worth, which was not much. And I didn't get it. Uh, and I got left with dot TV, which I should have gone dot co. But for a few years when that was my email address, everyone thought I worked in TV. I was like, no, I just couldn't get dot com. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. You know, domain names hard to find these days for sure. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, awesome. Well, let's get into our lightning round questions then. Sure. Five questions that we've asked every founder that's been on the podcast so far. Now, at some point, I think we are going to change up these lightning round questions, but we haven't done it yet. So here we go, Nolan. Number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would it be? Execute, execute, execute. Have faith that both yourself and your team, we can overcome anything ahead. Cool. And tell me just a snippet of why that's the message that comes to mind for you. Um, you know, I we work with a lot of... Um, I would say just younger staff generally. And, you know, I've noticed that younger staff can be, or at least less experienced, let's not put an age on it, right? Sure. Can yeah. have a challenge around, you know, confidence of, am I doing the right thing? Can I do this? Is this something that, you know, is even possible, right? And so I've really learned that in helping those inexperienced staff come on, helping them understand that the ultimate goal is to make sure that the client is, you know, served as perfectly as possible and given a great relationship yeah. and experience do whatever it takes to get there. You can ask a lot of apologies. You can ask for a lot of forgiveness, right? If you're yep. erring in the side of taking care of the customer. Love that. All right. Question number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst? Yeah, best. Um, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Mm. You know, when I, when I started at 23, I loved technology. Well, I still love technology, but I loved everything in technology, right? So I wanted to do everything, right? We'll run your IT. We'll do your cybersecurity. At some point I was thinking about doing smart city stuff, right? Like we'll, <laughs> we'll just, if it, if it connects to the internet, you know, we can do it. Um, that's a very hard thing to market. It's a very hard, you know, selling everything is a hard thing to sell. Right. Yeah. And so I, I have learned double down on what, you know, your best at, what your organization is best at eliminate outsource everything else. So you can have that maniacal focus on what you're truly, truly, truly best at. And then uh, worst business advice, um, worst business advice I've ever gotten is avoid business debt at all costs. I used to know somebody who would be, who is always all about huh. run your business like your personal finances, keep as much debt out of it as possible, so on and so forth. Finance everything out of your cash flow. That is a recipe for not scaling. That's a recipe for some kind of disaster. Be willing to go into debt a little bit to scale your business. Wow. I'm so glad we got to that part. That's that's a very interesting take. I like that. All right. Question number three, what causes you the most stress or worry currently leading your organization? Um, how do we keep this amazing culture that we do have while trying to reach, you know, this, this next set of goals and scale that we want to achieve, you know, in the next couple of years, I want my team to be six, seven, eight times the size of what it is. How do I keep this culture of integrity and candor and transparency alive while we bring in, you know, why quadruple and quintuple the team size? Yeah, totally makes sense. You don't, you want scale, but you don't want scale to ruin some of the stuff you love the most, right? Exactly. Awesome. All right. Number four, what is your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal? 
I want to make Intrinium the number one cybersecurity service provider in the world. That is hands down the goal. I want to be number one. I want Deloitte to look up to me and say, oh Let's man, go. I wish we could be them. <laughs> Let's go. I like that. A true big, hairy, audacious goal, man. Well done. All right, number five. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past, and you get to tell yourself just one thing out the driver's side window as you drive by, when are you going back? And what's the one thing you tell that younger version of yourself? Man, I would go back. I would go back to um, that 2014 time period when I got afraid and made a decision out of fear. And I would remind myself decisions out of fear do not lead to the results that you need. Stay focused on what you're doing. Don't yeah. make your decisions based upon something that you've made up that feels like fear. Yeah. Yes. Come on. That's so good. Uh, yeah. I have like two simple rules in life. I have way more rules than this, but this is just <laughs> the one that come to mind. Never go grocery shopping or make my grocery list while I'm hungry and don't make big decisions out of fear. Right. Yes. It's so <laughs> important. They, they'll lead you down the wrong way every single time. Every time, every time. Awesome. Nola, man, this has been so fun. I am excited that you remember to tell us about your book because talking with you, it's clear that you've learned so much uh, wisdom and, and really helpful uh, things for people following in your footsteps, you know, not even in the same industry, but just as an entrepreneur, as a risk taker, as a business builder. And man, thank you for one, taking the work because I know what it takes to write a book. And that's, that's a whole soul crushing experience. So one, thank you for doing that. And then two, thank you for being on here today, making time and sharing your story with us. It was truly valuable. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Drew. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.